Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com. The show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Here we go again, another week. We are getting closer to Purim, so as promised, here's a lighter episode. After we round up our dating stories slash mechotanim guide, which is today, you are in for a three-part series on LGBTQ and the firm community, so stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for your referrals to my podcast production company. I'm also opening up spots for business coaching for a short period of time. People have been reaching out, so I am opening up slots for that. Normally, I'd be covering the situation, but given the situation and my personal ties to it, I cannot cover the story yet, but I hope soon. I'll be able to go into this controversial territory a little bit for you. Yes, I'm talking about Ukraine. In the meantime, we pray for the safety and well-being and peace for all the people and nations involved and all the people suffering. Today, my ask for me is going to be try to do something kind for someone around you who may seem like they need it, even if it's just a smile. And without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast. Today with us, we have Sarah, a volunteer who was willing to come onto the show to share her wisdom and experience and hopefully lighten the mood around this podcast, as well as create a resource for people who are entering the Parsha or who would like to improve on their skills as they move along marrying off their children. So today's episode is called The Mechotanim's Guide. Without any further ado, welcome to the show, Sarah. I thank you. Let's start off and tell us what categories of potential new Mechotanim need to know about. I'm assuming we have the Shadduchim stage, so the pre-dating the preparing for the dating, then you have the dating, and then hopefully you move on to engagement slash relationships with the mechotanim, all the other things involved in preparing for a wedding, and then there's the post-marriage. So I'll stop talking. You want like a guideline type Would of you thing? say I covered everything? Or are there yeah. other categories of well, mechotanim life that I didn't mention? <laughs> well, I don't know if they do it today, but in my day when people got married, the movie, the video, it wasn't the video, it was a movie that said not the end, just the beginning. So that's what it is. After the wedding, hopefully it's the beginning of a good relationship as the children have more children and there are simchas and a yom tovim to share and those challenges. So my first feeling, not everybody is comfortable with this, but I would recommend that they look into it, is to have a rav. That is very important for a young couple, that's very important for single people, and it's very important as you are looking into shaduchim and marrying off children. You need a Rav to bounce things off, especially somebody who's had experience, if not themselves, with other people's experiences. 
So that's very important. It, it's not a cop out. It's just getting das Torah and you feel more comfortable with some decisions that you make. The other thing that I was thinking about is if you love your children, you will get along with the machatonim and you're going to make it work because ultimately whatever your relationship will be will affect your children and your grandchildren and it'll come back to you. That's my advice, to have somebody to turn to, a Rav, when you have questions, starting off with if you were looking for a certain type of boy or girl, and perhaps somebody suggested something very different, or if you have a question about information, you might want to turn to a Rav, and also not to discuss it with everybody on the block. Very important. This is private. You're not going to discuss medical conditions and you don't discuss this. This is private. It's not for every neighbor and friend and relative to know that you're checking out a boy or a girl or something like that or checking out machatanam. Of course, you speak to the pertinent people, but you don't have to discuss it with everybody. We're looking into a boy from Pittsburgh, et cetera, et cetera. We want to keep it as sneeze as possible when we have to pry into other people's lives. Yes. I'd like to go through some of the things that parents may want to do in preparation for their kids starting Shadokham. Obviously, we prepare them since they're born, but are there any things specifically for young men or for young women that you want to make sure they have? For example, a young man might need access or the license to drive a car and then access to a car or an extra car if he will be taking a girl out on dates. A girl might need a new wardrobe or some other thing. So anything you would like to add to my assumptions? I guess it's a given that uh, the girl and the boy have to be able to have the facility to date. It's good to, let's say if you have, uh, this is what I did. If you have family or friends that married off several children to find out, especially within the last five years, to find out what's the appropriate expectation by parents. That's with the dating, your responsibility to provide, and then going forward with the engagement and a wedding, finding out what is appropriate, not what your kids tell you, like young kids say, everybody is going to Florida for winter break when five out of 30 are going. So the same with these expectations, like if the boy doesn't like the car that the father has and says, well, I really have to get a 2021 such and such car. Parents are so anxious for their children to be happy and to get married. And sometimes they just succumb to the whims of the child. And so in that respect, they could ask some friends or relatives just generally, what is the customary balbatish thing to do? That's very helpful. And I didn't think of that on my own, how children could take advantage of their parents and say, no, I need a nicer car and I need fancier things. And let's talk about resumes. What tips do you have for creating resumes to help your kids stand out? Also not potentially sharing compromising situation. I don't know what that even means, but from your experience... So in all honesty, I don't really have too much experience with resumes because in my generation, it didn't exist. And actually in my children's generation, it didn't exist all that much. You got references and you called and that was it. 
now we're going to the next generation of grandchildren and all this talk about pictures, etc., which I personally am against the pictures. As they say, a picture is worth a thousand words, but that's not the case here. You get absolutely no idea of the personality or the person just because she went to a makeup artist and a hair artist to make herself look gorgeous. So that's not really uh, real. What's real is some personality traits. I, I see some of the resumes, they kind of say what their interest is, what their hobbies are, the kind of person that they're looking for. So I think that's very helpful. If somebody does extracurricular activities, chasadim, hobbies that they have, that's always very helpful. And besides for being super modest and quiet around calling references, what are some helpful questions potentially that could actually give you a little inside scoop, whether that potential young man or young woman is appropriate for your child? Well, something that I learned after the fact, which uh, thank God I didn't make any mistakes. Hashem was very kind. But if you're asking about the boy or the girl, to ask more open-ended questions. Because when you say, does he learn, is he very diligent in his learning, they know where you're heading. And they're going to say, oh, yes, of course, this, that, and the other thing. Is she quiet? So you you're worried that they're worried about the girl being quiet. And you say, oh, oh no, she's not quiet. She's very lively. So if you ask, tell me about her, tell me about her activities, tell me about her interests, tell me what she does on a day off from work, from school, tell me how she interacts with her sisters-in-law, brothers-in-law, nieces, nephews. So have these open-ended questions that leave it to the other person to give you a little more honest information, not what you were guiding them to. Yeah, and as a podcast coach, that's exactly what I would tell any interviewer. You want to ask a question that will open a conversation and not end it for you. Now let's assume the dating part, we're not talking about Shadokham itself. Let's move on to Baruch Hashem. It seems like this is a right fit. Oh, no. And I can just remember when I was 15 and my oldest brother was getting married and the, the, his parents were coming. There was the Mechotadim are coming, the Mechotadim are coming. So that part, especially when it's for the first time, you want to get your house prepared. You want to look presentable. You want your home to feel welcoming. What actually happens at that stage? And I know there are a lot of financial aspects to this. I know there are a lot of emotional things. There could be expectations that may have been met or let down. So let's talk about this real stuff. It's not necessarily an order of importance. It's it's an order of how I think of it. It's very important to have guidance of a Rav, a Rav who has dealt with families marrying off children. One thing that's extremely important is not to discuss anything uh, negative, any negative thought you have about the other side, either the the Hasanokala or their parents or their family. Certainly not during the engagement period. Your child now has like a dual loyalty. 
loyalty to the new family, and they'll be very sensitive. And a lot of things besides Lush and Hara, a lot of things that just an impression that somebody may have made. And let's face it, it's a little bit of a tense time for both sides. If the other side has experience and one side doesn't have experience, it might make a difference too. Negative sounds yeah. all good, but I'm sure there are things that may feel very innocent that may come across as negative or sensitive to the people receiving it. Do you have some examples of things not to say that may be totally fine to a stranger or a friend, but because they're becoming family now, it's new territory. Right. Let's say, let's say you met with the Mahatanam, you went into their house or something like that. And you, you have something to say about the, the style, their decor or that they look cheap or the boy or the girl, how they dress or some, some comment or when it starts to go into financial discussion, which except for what the parents are going to be, let's say they'll have a talk between themselves without the kids around as far as any wedding arrangements and possible help that they're going to give. The couple will probably have expressed, we'd like to go to Israel, we'd like to go for two years. And then the parents have to discuss with each other, the two sets of parents, what each one is, what the plan is, what they're willing to contribute. But other than that, the young couple should really be left out of a lot of the arrangements. And just like asking for the special car or the special wardrobe, they have to be made to understand that the parents don't have a bottomless pit to provide for them. I think they have to know that they have some responsibility also, not just here's a credit card and go have a good life. They have to have some responsibility. But the discussion, I think, should be between the sets of parents for the most part. Let's just go over some of the standard norm expected things that are specifically to the from culture, but also this would technically apply to the groom and bride themselves in secular culture when the bride and groom are older and more independent, usually financially, but here in our communities, it falls onto the parents and some people just don't know. And I know this is probably an American thing. Maybe it crosses over into other places. I don't want to speak for everyone, but I'd like to go over some of the standards. And the reason this is called a guide is because we recently had this episode on Bali Chuva and the dynamics and the harsh realities. The point is people who are doing this for the first time or may not have had parents who had to go through this, let's tell them so they know what the standards are, whether they're implied or unimplied, just so there's this resource out there. So standards as far as... All the things you need to buy. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with engagement. Okay, so... The ring, the watch, the shaitel, the leichter. When I married off my first son, so that was quite a few years ago, I actually called about four friends who married off at least two sons. I had a notebook. Notebooks are very important. I know... Or if your phone is your notebook, but uh, and ask what is the customary thing to do, not to offend anybody, etc. So I got a composite. Nothing was black and white that you have to, but when three out of five said the same thing, I felt that's the right thing to do. 
for Bali Chuva, it's much more difficult. They don't have that experience. Their parents don't have that experience. So again, that's where their Rav would be helpful. And we're coming from a place of what do I do next? And I'm waiting for people to tell me and I'm sort of expected to know everything. Yeah, right. So we just recently experienced something where uh, somebody married somebody from a slightly different schnitt, shall we say. So there was nothing asked of the other side, but they tend to be more into giving gifts and things like that. But not everybody's like that. So you have to kind of know also the culture of the chasen or the kala, so that there are standard things when the boy kind of makes it official. He gives her a bracelet or some type of piece of jewelry. During the engagement, very often the chasen gets a watch. The kala gets an engagement ring. In the yichud room, usually the chasen gives the kala a piece of jewelry. Sometimes parents give the chasen a set of shas, sometimes a menorah. But uh, that has to be, you know, asked around. I, I wouldn't say that that's black and white absolute. And it is a very big financial strain on parents because I got married a long time ago. This was not the norm. It was not the norm. It was an engagement piece of jewelry. It was an engagement ring, a watch, and something at the the Kalgat at the Yichud room. Everything is, has been, we've upped it. My concern is when parents feel very pressured, pressured by the other side, pressured by their children to do the right thing. And sometimes it makes them very resentful. So that's something that if they feel it's something that they have to work on, discuss it with a Rav or a close relative, not in the snitching, just in advice. How do I go forward with this? This is uncomfortable for me. Just reach out for advice from trusted people. So I love how you're bringing that dynamic in because I'm going to counter you here with if somebody wanted a checklist, like they're sending their kid off to school and here's a checklist and money's not an issue or you can you have access to a Judaica shop and you can get whatever you want, what would be on that list? So I'll just go over some things. And I know you mentioned menorah. That wasn't on mine. So I'm happy I'm brainstorming this with you. So we have the ring. Someone said you bring a few bracelets to the Lachaim. The girl gets to choose one and you bring the rest this way. The, the Kala gets to choose. The ring comes later on. A machzer set, a leichter, a watch for the chassin, cufflinks, a kiddush cup, three talesim, and a shetel or two for the Kala. Is there anything missing? So definitely, thank you. The shaitel, I have to tell you from experience that some families, the chasen side pays for one shaitel. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's the kala side that pays for the shaitel. Leichter, definitely the chasen side generally does. Sedurim machzairim is like a little bit more of a more modern to me uh, a thought. And talis, yes, talis or shablis. If the family are into an atara, and then the weekday talis and talis fill and bag, but certainly not, I, I don't know what three talisim is. Fleshik milchik parv, I'm not crazy. Maybe a red stripe, a blue stripe, and a yellow stripe. The kittel for the chuppah, maybe? I've never heard of three. I guess a great guide here, and what I'm getting from you is these are all options and not expectations, meaning not to expect the other side to provide anything, but more like 
your children may need these items like a leichter or a kiddish cup or a till after they get married. It's a good idea to make sure somebody provides that or helps them provide it. And obviously there are tons of people listening to this podcast who absolutely would never wear a So that does not apply to you. And I'm sure there are people who go DIY. They could have their candlesticks from the dollar store. Would you like to add anything as we proceed into the wedding planning itself? Before the wedding planning, there's usually a l'chaim. And then some people do a vart on top of that. And then you have the ofrof wedding and Shabbat brachos. The one thing that I wanted to say, I probably this would be the good time. It's a generational thing. I'm not into Facebook or Instagram, all that stuff. And that goes back into what we talked about, sneas. Sneas is not just necklines and sleeves and head covering or knee covering. Sneas is how you behave. And there's a lot of talk about the concern about putting things on Facebook and uh, look at this, we're in Hawaii, it's so beautiful, and look at our new baby and all this. And you're really stucking out the oigen, you're sticking, poking out the eyes of other people, envy, jealousy, hurt feelings because they can't have it. And for what? You know, it can only hurt you if people are envious of you. So the same thing here to this whole thing, I, I never go on only simchas, never, because I, I consider it the same thing. So whoever's listening to it and thinks I'm an old fogey, that's okay, because I am. But everything has to have a happy medium. You know what I'm saying? Just because it's a thing that's done doesn't mean that you have to do it or that you have to do it to the extreme and be very descriptive and very showy. It's really not a sneistic behavior. So the same thing, if you, the chassan and the kala and the parents agree that, and that, let's say they did inquire by trusted people that this is the right thing to purchase and the minimum expectation, that's fine. But showing off, I got this and I got that, it also just leads to a lot of hurt feelings by people who couldn't afford or didn't get, and uh, then it causes ill feeling towards your in-laws and your parents. It's a lose-lose proposition. Let's say we have a family here and they are now joining in with another family and potentially their financial beliefs, what one considers to be modest or more appropriate may differ from what the other family thinks. So something as sensitive as paying for a wedding with two different families who are complete strangers many times, how do they navigate for some families, their standard may be a lot lower or a lot higher. And how do you proceed with finding that medium that feels appropriate and comfortable? Who's the one who's going to compromise? Do both sides need to compromise? And how do you navigate that situation? It feels very sensitive. My husband always says, when he worked at the Hershey stand as a teenage boy, you don't want to get in between people, their money and their food, because you're always going to be wrong. Well, this feels like a recipe for something very uncomfortable because it's thousands and thousands of dollars. 
with complete strangers and you're becoming family. So what do you have to say? I think this is the big part of this episode. If it's the type of people that we're talking about that do the checking, let's say, that do that advanced checking of the families, et cetera, that's an area where they would want to have checked in if the other side had made uh, a wedding's prior to that? Or what is their, besides what seems to be their financial status, in other words, their lifestyle, how they live, et cetera. And that'll give you a clue as to their standards. So you you could have people that are very wealthy and don't have very high standards. You could have people that are not so wealthy and need to do this showy show. That's why the best thing is for the parents to meet together after hopefully they have a little idea about one another's uh, standards to discuss it, because otherwise (laughs) for the kids to hear this back and forth would not be so healthy. The thing is that marrying off a child is really a a work in progress on your midos. And you have to look at it that way. It's not what's in it for me, your kids and showing off. You want to work on yourself and being mevater in a lot of areas is tremendous. And it's something that doesn't happen overnight. So being mevater, if it's something that you wanted something different than the other side wanted, you have to really think about how important is it to me? Is it so important that it affects the relationship with my machatanim, affects the relationship with my future in-law child, you see? And a lot of times, I know with my own experience, sometimes you just, you go that one step higher to please the other side because you saw that they're going to be very kind and generous to your child. So you're willing to go that extra mile. It's not a, I don't want them to win and and that type of thing. It's not a contest here. It's a contest of showing your children you care about them, love them, and respecting the machatanim's wishes and making sure they respect yours. Is it safe to assume that most families or most mechotanim go into a 50-50 or a flop arrangement for the wedding? And flop stands for flowers, liquor, orchestra, and photographer slash videographer. Right. I know from my experience and other people's experiences, not every wedding comes out that way. Sometimes they do 50-50 and even with 50-50, sometimes let's say somebody's marrying a Balchuva, but they are FFB. So the other side will have a lot fewer people than the FFB side. So to split 50-50, where the other side has to pay 50% of where the other one had most of the people is kind of like not fair. We know of cases where They split 50-50 plus paid like the over people. And there could be like a combination of the 50-50 and then somebody pays for band and liquor and somebody pays for flowers, et cetera. It's not 100% black and white, but traditionally years ago it was flop, but it became more 50-50 mainly, I think, because parents are helping children out in the beginning. So it's the furniture and possibly tickets to Israel and rent or rent wherever they live, perhaps insurance. So 50-50 often works out well. 
again to make sure that you it's not a contest here. I don't want them to win. I don't want them to have the upper hand. You're focusing on making a good relationship for your son and daughter-in-law and for them with both sets of parents. And is this something the Mechotanim discuss with each other in terms of setting up the couple where they're going to live, potentially how they're getting there, how they're going to furnish their place, and potentially spending money to pay for bills and food the first few X amount of whatever? Yeah, I would think it's best for the parents to start off talking to to one another, the two Mechotanim, but they should also, obviously, they will have found out from their children what their plan when they were dating and getting serious. They were discussing what they want to do after they get married, where they would like to live, what they would like to do. If somebody's in school, if the girl is in school and she has her tuition still, if she's not able to work or if he's not working. But somewhere along the line, as I said before, the couple should have some responsibility. It shouldn't just be handed on a silver platter. They'll, it's just, I don't think it's a healthy thing, but I'm coming from a different generation. Like you're paying for the child to go to camp and then the child gets tips and the child feels that they're entitled to keep the tips. So it's that kind of an idea. So it, I'm just shooting out thought process. It's not, I'm not telling anybody what they need to do. I'm just giving them ideas of how to think uh, because parents are feeling very stressed and that is not a good recipe, which would be a pleasant experience. One thing I do want to say that's very important, very, very important. And I tell this to a lot of people, the engagement period is a very short period. Therefore, it's very short and very stressful, but that's it. After the wedding, most of that stress is over. So just keep a sense of humor and realize that it'll soon be over and everything will be nice. So don't fret too much during the engagement period. Enjoy it. Let your kids enjoy it. And as I said, each one has a new loyalty to a new family. And you have to keep that in mind. I love that. I'll separate the last two categories of our episode into how to be a good parent-in-law. And the parent-in-law starts when they get engaged or whenever you meet the new addition. And some people switch right away to whatever the child calls their parents at that moment. Some don't. I've heard of everything in between. So how to be a good parent-in-law. What are some expectations of the married couple after being newlyweds? And maybe what are some of the expectations or norms for Shabbos and Yentif attendance? So obviously, in ideal world, everything is even, Stephen. I thought you, know, you were going to say not expected. <laughs> no, no, no. Everything is even, Stephen. Every, everybody feels they'll go to one parent, the one Shabbos, and the other, the other Shabbos, and Yom Tovim splitting up. This is something that when you marry off a first child, maybe... You don't have enough experience yet, but lowering your expectations, when you have high expectations, you potentially getting high disappointments. Expectations lead to disappointments. So first thing is to make the other child feel comfortable in your home. 
And whenever possible, just positive statements to your child about their spouse. That's very helpful. If possible, anytime you speak to Yimachatanim, complimentary comments about their child. That can only lead to comfort and, and joy with the families, with the Machatanim. And trying to be mevater. Obviously, if every Shabbos and every yant, if they're going to go to one side, the side that's not getting the kids need to speak to a Rav because something there's something there, something's going on. It could be a religious issue, kashris or something like that. But if it's minhakim, that has to be accommodated because uh, you're marrying into this new family. You have to be able to live with them. So that's where a Rav comes in. And he might help the parents navigate how to talk to either the in-law child or to the other machatanim to accommodate one another. But the lowering the expectations, everybody does this and everybody goes to the girl's side, the first Pesach and all that stuff. Uh, try to knock that out of your mind. Or you have to name your first child after our side. Exactly, exactly. Okay. What's the proper etiquette for communication with the Mukhatanim after the wedding? Because you probably had a lot of communication back and forth. And the more communication, I remember he told me before how that's key. It's all about communication. How do you transition out of that? Because they were on speed dial and now you're sort of in this limbo. It's a new, it's a new space. What are some etiquette? Well, you know, to me, a very important thing is a good relationship with the Machatanim. So whether it's calling definitely before a Yantif or before Rosh Hashanah to wish good Yantif. And I'm not saying you have to call every Friday, but once in a while, be in touch, say hello. Invite them to your other Simchas. Do you invite their children? Yes, Machatanim generally invite their other Machatanim to the family Simchis. The other family's children, it's questionable and could be very large amount of people they cannot accommodate. To me, Machatanim are very important in my life. I consider them very, very good friends and I cherish friendships and I nourish friendships. Therefore, I nourish friendships of Machatanim. I learned that from my parents, and I, I see that in the next generation, and it makes me very happy. And it's just the best thing for your children. This is the next part of the episode I really want to make sure we address. A lot of the communication and practical discussions happen between the parents. It's a purposeful, intentional thing to not have the conversations in front of the couple that's getting married to avoid any uncomfortable situations or to keep them out of all the stressful stuff and financial stuff during a time that's so happy for them. On the other hand, you want to, as you said before, you want to teach them some responsibility. And this is a great place potentially to teach them about ketchup is not going to just show up in your fridge. Somebody's going to have to pay for it. And usually after getting married, babies happen, hopefully, and somebody's going to have to pay for them for their day schools. And eventually you won't be able to just go every Shabbos or every Yantiv go away for them. And, and that's with a healthy family. Imagine if there are any disabilities or other developmental or health-related issues that make it even harder. So how do you use that time to properly prepare the couple, both financially and just for adult life, for married life, which is a huge contrast to being completely taken care of and spoon-fed? And most of 
young couples get married from their home. They're not living on their own in their apartments and houses. The truth is this has to start earlier, way before this uh, dating experience. In other words, the girl does babysitting and the girl works in camp. The boy maybe do have a a job in in a summer camp and the parents have to teach them about saving and uh, saving money and about spending and saving and responsibility and the choices that you make. You go to CVS with your long string of coupons and uh, you can't have it all. If you made a decision that you're going to save $2 on uh, a Hershey bar, you can't have the Hershey bar and the Hershey Kisses. So little by little, you have to raise them and train them that they have to make choices And if they earn some money, they have the choice of spending it or saving it, and then they could accumulate and buy something bigger, like a bike or something like that. So that is just like an education. You don't want your children growing up as adults and thinking that everything, yes, we believe that everything comes from Hashem, but when they start to call their father and father-in-law Hashem, it's getting a little bit scary. Do you think... It's a necessary or important conversation for parents to have with their children about how exhausting, difficult, and expensive children may be. And instead of letting them figure it out on their own or assuming someone else may have taught them at some point or their collar husband teacher, which I don't think they talk about, just the idea of if you don't use birth control, you may have the average I heard is 13 children if if you don't have fertility intervention, Intervention. a woman between getting married early 20s to menopause can have 13 children. So if they are not at all aware of birth control, do you think it's the place of a parent to at some point introduce the idea of this is a choice or all actions have consequences? So maybe removing the word choice for people who are uncomfortable to use that word around birth control. But is that a conversation you think parents have the responsibility to have with their children before they get married? It has to be a very good question. This was something that I never thought about years ago. I'd say probably the last five, six years, I thought about it more because you're seeing a lot of issues coming up in the beginning of marriages. But I think a lot of college teachers do discuss this possibility Obviously, a rub has to be consulted, but I think there are some rabbinim out there that are, they don't say us or us or forbidden. It has to come into a conversation and a potential reasoning, et cetera. So I don't know. I don't, I guess that has to be a real comfort zone for a parent to discuss it, certainly with the girl and then the girl speak to the boy, because really the issue, the uh, handling of it becomes more of the girl's responsibility. Men also get the need of course, even though women are handling mikvah and dikakoks. Right. But as far as what you asked about down the line and, and the responsibility with their children and everything, I mean, th- that's part of, I think, that the plan of the sets of parents to to let them know we will help up to this point, and then we're there to be supportive, but not supporting. And that's a very big differentiation, to be supportive parents and to be supporting parents. Nobody, no couple should go into marriage thinking that uh, that this is it. Forever, they're taken care of. They'll never be responsible. And it's a scary thought. What's an average or accepted amount of time for children to be supported in a 
big way. <laughs> when I was first married, a lot of the, actually they retired by now, but some of the big Russia yeshiva and principals of schools of yeshivas uh, all went to college. So it was an accepted thing. You went to yeshiva during the day and college at night. They, everybody was working. Everybody was working when they got married. If they were learning, they were learning in the evening. We didn't have this world, and nobody went to Israel. So we didn't have this world of supporting children. There was no such mentality. It started, and it just took off like lightning. So I would like to think that once... First of all, if the young man is in a kollel, so he's getting some stipend. If the young lady finished school, she's working right now until she has a baby, she's working. If she's going to school, she'll finish and she'll get a job. So by then they should be working on their independence. The, the One of the issues is this having like money from your wedding or money from your savings from before, if the girl was a little bit older and she had savings. So that uh, that should be discussed, like towards a house or something like that, not towards twice a year going to Aruba. And then the parents are paying f- for everything else. So it's a maturity discussion. For know? sure. Which is why I wanted to bring up specifically birth control, because that's the main differentiator between secular couple that could just live in a great school district. They pay their taxes on their house and they get free public school education for their children versus if you have Jewish kids at Orthodox who will go to Orthodox day schools, a great PA job may cover three kids, maybe, uh, but then not 13, not eight. By then, hopefully they grow up and they know to ask for guidance. Before we end, we have to bring this up any red flags or abuse, anything that parents, mechotanim, should be aware of or know to recognize if they see, whether in an engaged couple, maybe before then, or unfortunately, after they're already married. The first thing is that you need to have a rub that you know that you can speak to. So right away, you have that resource person available to you, whatever the question is. Because what happens is once the girl or boy seem to be really interested in the other party, it's a very big problem to try to break it up because they might just marry that person and just never speak to their parent again and unfortunately live a very messy life. Generally, a lot of the red flags are like control type of things. For example, if during the dating Unfortunately, the control type of personality is able to control themselves during the dating and cover up a lot of their behavior. And a lot of times during the engagement, unfortunately, it could come out where uh, they will say they don't want to go to the other one's parents or they don't want the other one to do something. Definitely after the wedding, unfortunately, is when that really shows up. But that is a real red flag when I've known people that were married many years. And when I heard the woman saying that her husband doesn't let this and doesn't let that, eventually did, did get divorced. But I, that kind of personality is around from the beginning. It's just that the, the other side is like an enabler and lets them get away with it. So controlling, I want you to do this all the time. I don't want you going there, that type of thing. Of course, any kind of abusive 
speech, negative speech to the other party is a total no-no. Calling names or even speaking negatively about the other parents is a red flag, but controlling is a big thing. And that's not easy to see during the dating phase. In the case of divorce, we didn't bring this up. What do you think the proper, assuming it's not a get refusal situation, I'm assuming both families go their separate ways, but they're both grandparents separately together. Simcha's maybe talk a little bit about that. And then what if there is a get refusal situation? It very rarely do I see the parents of the get refuser stand up against their son. It's usually they're hiding out. Do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, no, it's just so terribly sad. It's so terribly sad. We had, I don't know if you saw the Young Israel posted that story, and it was in uh, Mishpacha magazine about the little boy with the bar mitzvah. The parents had gotten divorced a few years ago, and apparently the two sides were not speaking to each other, the the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles and everybody. And here is this little Yaakov's bar mitzvah, and the two sides of the family, they did have the get, but sitting on different sides of the Simcha hall, and Yaakov gets up to speak, and then he starts crying, and he says the only thing that he really wants is to dance with both grandparents and sets a fam. And little by little, he goes over to each grandfather and they start dancing and there are tears and the uncles and cousins are all dancing together. So I, I don't know what to say about that, but if anybody's inclined to go off and behave that way, they have to know how much they're hurting the children. They're using the children as pawns that they have to know. And last two points I wanted to mention here. I know you mentioned this on, on the pre-call, so I wanted to make sure to include this in your name. Number one, communication, communication, communication. And that's also great tips for the couple themselves. And number two, don't be so sensitive. Let it go, right? You've said that several times when we spoke earlier. With Mahatanim. Yes, yes. Not to be so sensitive, right? You said something in the name of Rip Shmuel Kamenetsky, whatever the other side wants. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. When it comes to having mixed seating or walking the, the two fathers with the chassan and the two mothers with the kala or the parents. I know of, of several cases where somebody was mavater and said, okay, this means a lot to me, but if it means a lot to them, let's go for it. It's It's just an investment in the couple's happiness. We've mentioned so many valuable things. If there are follow-up questions, please do submit them so we can perhaps do a follow-up. Or if you were happy with this episode, I hope this does serve as a resource and guide for people in addition to having their personal rabbi and or Rebitson guiding them through this complicated yet exciting chapter in their lives. Thank you, Sarah, so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for sticking around until the end. As always, please do reach out. You can join the WhatsApp discussion group. You can also message me privately. I love hearing from you. I love hearing your input toward future episodes for past episodes. I would like to spice up our sponsorship slash affiliate partnerships here and advertise interesting products and services. So if you are selling something that's truly unique, please do reach out to me so we can set something up and promote you on the show. If you are thinking 
of launching a podcast or starting a brand, do reach out. Let's talk about your next steps. Let me help you launch your podcast successfully. If you did enjoy this episode, please subscribe to the show. Share this podcast with your friends and family members. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you like this podcast, you'll probably like the other podcasts, a part of jewishcoffeehouse.com network. So go check them out, listen to them, and see you next week.